George. What's going on, man? Hey, Mike. What's up? Hey, guys. Welcome to the Phil Krause Survival Podcast. I'm sitting in the studio. This is not a studio. This is a room that has been um, made to look like a studio. <laughs> you, you guys did a good job on the wall. You just yeah. nailed up wood with your dad. Yeah. We uh, stained it, hung up a picture. That's the best part of this thing. I know. I guess it's so much. It just needs a better lighting. Or next to the bathroom, too. <laughs> you know, it, I always think about this. If, if you're like a rich dude, if you're a billionaire and you're listening to this podcast, just throw us like 50 Gs. That's it. We would... At Venmo or at uh, Phil Craft for Venmo. Just we would, tell me We would just Gs. get a new office space. I'll get an office space with a studio. Yeah. And, and I'll promise you, I'll sponsor you for life. <laughs> Whoever gives $50,000 for our new studio, you will be the life it, sponsor of the we'll podcast. We'll change the name of the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> The Steve Jones podcast. Um, So uh, we just got done donating seven thousand ish dollars worth of. It was over seven k. It had to be easy, easily over seven k. That was it was two truckloads plus back seats, and they were filled. They weren't cheap toys. No, we had some quality. We're talking about Legos. Yep, Toy Stories, Barbies, Barbies, uh, all the Avengers, those those wooden toys. Yeah. Uh, big shout out to that business in downtown Prescott. What's that? Yeah. What's that oh, I don't know. I have to look it up. <laughs> it's a boutique on the it, corner down from uh, <laughs> Bill's Pizza. <laughs> oh, man. She posted us. She did. I saw that. that she was looked sweet. like she was 12 years old. She looked, we looked like giants. Huge. <laughs> I look fat as fuck on that fucking thing. I, look, I had high waters on. Oh, my, my God. Who took the angle of that shit? That was, was that he, guy. He was down the steps. Was he on the ground? I don't. I didn't remember him being on the ground. Oh shit! Yeah, it was. Uh, it was cool because we tied in the survival seminar with that, and the the mayor sent a representative to go pick it up. They went to the expo center and they're yeah. bringing in families all this week yep. to come pick up toys. And they're going to have the police officers go out and hand out. Toys. And they're having uh, volunteers wrap the toys. Yeah, they're wrapping the toys. I'd have been like, no way. I, who's going to wrap? There, there's there's fifty thousand toys. <laughs> it's, oh my gosh! But you know, it's cool. Is it's tied into the local fame uh, media group, which they've been a r- real big help. Shout out to Guy Robinson and all the guys. Uh, I, yeah, it's been great. Like just the hometown, that small hometown feel. I'd love it. Yeah, I. I I'm super impressed. You know, a lot of people are super excited. We we don't get a lot of uh, engagement on social media with post posting about charity stuff. Yeah, no. you just don't get that right. But that doesn't matter. I think the engagement that's important is how everybody participated. Oh yeah. I mean, five eleven tactical, uh, hardhead veteran, kill, kill cliff. cliff. We had jeep jeep or sorry summit, summit uh, yeah. off road. All these companies yeah, donated. Abide Armory, Owens We're not going to name them all. Let's just go crazy. <laughs> they all invested in this charity run, which we did with uh, a raffle p- uh, piece to it, where you donated $10, you got a toy. Uh, we got a toy, and then we gave them a raffle ticket for something mm-hmm. that this, these companies provided. Bravo Company Manufacturing, uh, BCM. Yep. Um, so let's get off to our sponsors because that I'm just tying that into it. But uh, Killcliff donated. Thank you so much, Killcliff. Uh, Killcliff donated their new CBD drink. Yep. Um, we just got a resupply. Yes, we did. I'm about to take some of those home, man. <laughs> They're so good. You guys are greedy. The the CBD Recover drink. Um, those are my two favorites. I drink those all the time. Recover because it's not loaded down with caffeine. Yeah. We got a coupon code to survival10 at killcliff.com. Saves 10% on an order. 
Look, uh, we've been trying it out. I mean, you got Ignite right in front of you. We've been trying it out for six months now. Nothing bad to say about anything. The drinks are awesome. The people are awesome. The company's awesome. Uh, I've been doing all three drinks when I before I, or Kill during Cliff our challenge. work with the Kill Drink Challenge. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> um, we're also sponsored by TriarchSystems.com. We'll be in Texas and Dallas-Fort Worth on, on January 4th and 5th. Me and Raul will be there teaching. Uh, Triarch is facilitating the range, so they're, they're actually be on the range as well. But we'll have our Triarch carbines out there on the range. Use Philcraft one word to save 5% on any build or anything from TriarchSystems.com. Hey, that's a lot for a, a gun build. 5% is a lot. It is a lot. It's T-R-I-A-R-C. T-R-I-A-R-C Systems.com. Also, this podcast is sponsored by Hard-Headed Veterans. HardheadVeterans.com. These guys uh, gave us a couple ballistic helmets that we raffled off. Dude, there's a dude who paid 15 bucks. Yeah. I gave him two tickets because I, I estimated it up, and he won like a $700. Yeah. Too, uh, so easy. Ballistic helmet. Yeah. Thank you to Hardhead Veterans. Uh, Hardhead Veterans, number one, is obviously a, um, a veteran. Um, he's a, actually a Navy SEAL kid. It's a Navy SEAL. Uh, but they do ballistic helmets and ballistic gear. These helmets are NIG level three alpha above the ear uh, high cut designs. These are like the mirror ops uh, helmets, but they're ballistically rated. And he puts all the data on all on his website on on the uh, uh, the marketing sheets. Everything is listed out specifically on what it does. We're talking about ballistic protection from seventeen grain V fifty, uh, twenty four hundred feet per second at seven hundred thirty one meters per second. It has impact performance ratings, back face deformation ratings, and it's NIG Level 3 Alpha certified, which is the standard in ballistic protection. You guys can check them out, and they gave us a coupon code for $15 off every purchase that's $100 or more using Philcraft, one word, Philcraft, at hardheadveterans.com. And that's not headed, that's hardheadveterans.com. Thanks to those guys, HHV. Um, Also, this podcast is sponsored by TA Targets which is our target tree here at Fieldcraft, tatargets.com. Look, these guys are big supporters. We use their steel, and we hammer the crap out oh, of their steel. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have, what, 20 students per class, and it's two days of pistol and carbine, and those targets Swacking. are getting swacked. <laughs> swacked, twacked. Um, you actually, if you are interested in buying a target tree from TA Targets, you guys could go to tatargets.com and use Fieldcraft, one word, and save 10%. Big shout out to TA Targets. Thank you so much, guys. Hey, so this podcast, I got to, to interview Sean Ryan. Sean Ryan's a, a former Navy SEAL, also a former CIA contractor. The cool thing about Sean is we go way back. We go back to the contracting days. We were in Afghanistan the same time um, during Operation Red Wings. He was there right after, and we, we were on the ground together in Afghanistan. But I got to go to his his house, his home, in uh, Tennessee, I won't tell you the the city uh, in Tennessee, but beautiful place, man. Oh, I, I was watching the videos, and his house oh is beautiful, beautiful. The cheese, yeah. The terrain is majestic. Just out there in the woods, I love it, oh. man. Um, he's got a good piece of land. We did some uh, cool video there, but I got the opportunity to be Sean Ryan's first podcast, which he hasn't released yet. Which I'm excited for that release. We also videotaped it. Uh, I videotaped. Uh, he videotaped this one as well, and that one might drop. But we got to catch up with Sean Ryan. It's rare for him to be on a podcast, 
but super cool conversation. Uh, Sean's just a great dude, great human being. Yeah, I like how he just he just no bullshitting. You know, it's like yeah, I love if you don't that. like you, he'll tell you you don't like you. Yeah, I know. I, that's what I want in somebody. I know. I don't like you, George. You know, and that's a lie. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. It's a lie. But yeah, I, I like his honesty, his frankness, and he's just one of those dudes that has a, a, a good mirror of experience. Um, but he's not cocky about it. Uh, his wife, Katie, is amazing. Um, had a real good time hanging out with the dogs and, and the fam uh, and look forward to doing it again. I can't wait to have them come up here and actually enjoy oh, some yeah. time in Prescott. Uh, that's it. I'm ready to kick that's this it. thing off. Let's go. Let's go. Sean motherfucking Ryan. What is up? Welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for having me. If it wasn't for you inviting me, I wouldn't be podcasting you. So thanks for having me, man. You're welcome. We've come a long way since Yemen. We have. Um, so, <laughs> Sean's, you know, if you guys don't have back, a, a background on Sean, Sean is a Navy SEAL. He's also a former CIA contractor. And he's been operating in this space that we call the tactical industry for a long while now. Um, I can only name a handful of dudes in the tactical space that actually are relevant. Uh, these old school dudes who are teaching September 10th tactics, don't give a fuck. Yeah. Um, you are teaching September 11th tactics because you've lived it. And uh, I, I kind of want to, one, tell us who you are, what you do, and then we'll get to the backdrop because I want to talk about your story. But uh, what do you do? What does it say? What is it you say you do here? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now, what do I do? Well, I run a YouTube channel and um, I run an apparel company. I run a training company. A um, little bit of entertainment, a little bit of comedy education, inspiration, motivation, um, a pretty broad spectrum. I kind of just do whatever I'm having fun at. And uh, if I'm having fun, then I concentrate on that. So, but those are all things I do. Vigilance Elite's your company, right? Vigilance Elite is my company. When did you start Vigilance Elite? I started Vigilance, it became Vigilance Elite, I believe, right around 16 maybe 17 but um originally it was like trident security consulting or some shit like that um and then <clears throat> basically what sparked it is uh i left cia i didn't know what the hell i was gonna do and as we both know active shooters are becoming more and more common and I started seeing all the uh, cell phone footage and shit on the news, right? So when I saw it and I could see how people were reacting, um, I decided I wanted to try to make a difference. And um, so it kind of started actually as like, I was gonna try to teach mindset and then I was gonna go to well-to-do homes and come up with kind of an emergency action plan and uh none of that shit was working uh i don't you know i didn't have any contacts i was fresh out of the agency and uh you know we tend to isolate so it's kind of hard to sell when uh you isolate 
<clears throat> and uh, then I started uh, teaching shooting courses. And uh, that's about the time everything started blowing up. You know, a, a lot of people don't know on my following, and maybe people listen to this podcast, your background and, and depth. So let's, let's talk about your background and depth from the very beginning. You grew up in a uh, military family. Your dad was in the Army. Um, and you grew up in that background. Talk, talk to us about your childhood. Uh, we moved around a lot. My dad was... I wouldn't really consider myself an army brat or, or anything like that, but my dad was a pharmacist and he started a company where he would go from uh, pharmacy to pharmacy, pretty primarily in the Midwest, but it was born in Kansas City, then we moved to Iowa, then we moved to Illinois, and every time we would move, it was my dad taking over another pharmacy to kind of unfuck it and so those would be anywhere I, I i mean i was too young to remember but it seemed to be about i don't know maybe one to three years at each location so i think we lived in four different places in illinois then my dad commissioned in the army as a pharmacist and uh, we went over to germany spent four years over there came back to the u.s when I came back, I was just starting seventh grade, and uh, I moved. We moved to Chillicothe, Missouri, which is a really small farm town, and uh, I would stay there until I graduated and uh, joined the Navy to go to Buds. What's the inspiration for you wanting to join the Navy? Well, I mean, I think about my childhood and that time period because we're about the same age, and um, movies, TV show, Hollywood. There wasn't a lot. I mean, Marcinko hadn't even written a book, really, I mean, until we were teenagers. Uh, what was the inspiration for you wanting to do something in the Navy? Um, I didn't really see any other options for me. I mean, there were a couple of reasons, but going back to when I was a kid, I was obsessed with the G.I. Joes. I was obsessed with G.I. Joes. And then uh, when we went to Germany, I think that's when Desert Storm was going on. So you might find me hanging around the bargain bin bookstore, you know, and uh, getting as many books full of pictures of dudes in uniforms, getting after it. Uh, and so, you know, I was always building forts, carving spears, making bows and arrows all that kind of shit, playing with G.I. Joes. And so I was always like, I always had like this infatuation with combat and, uh, and the military. Then as I got older, partying became more important. And um, I started drinking, I think in seventh grade. And- What were you drinking? What was your drink of choice in seventh grade? <laughs> anything I could get my hands on. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it didn't matter, you know, just anything I could get my hands on. And I enjoyed partying. The grades started sliding. Uh, the family wasn't too happy with me. But I'm a stubborn son of a bitch. So nothing's going to stop me. And wasn't going to go to college. That wasn't going to work out. I knew it wasn't going to work out. I knew I'd party and flunk out and... Uh, I never really had any interest in college anyways, 
didn't have any interest in the tech stuff and uh, my old man was getting down on my ass and we got into it and uh, basically he had you know told me he's not paying for my school and or any of that I didn't grow up in like a uh, we had a little bit of money and um, I had everything I needed. It wasn't like a rough childhood or anything. But um, <clears throat> when we got into it and he told me that he wasn't paying for my school, I had already talked to the Navy recruiter and actually I'd already talked to all the recruiters and uh, had already made the decision that uh, I wanted to go into special operations and then uh, more specifically the SEAL teams. Do they have a program straight off the street like they do similar in the Army where it's like the 18 x-ray program where you could try out to be a SEAL coming off the streets as a civilian or did you have to do something prior to that? Uh, it was pretty much off the street. But when I went in, uh, they had the SEAL Challenge program. And I mean, I can't confirm this, but I'm pretty sure it was just a marketing tactic for the Navy. To fill the slots yep. for the rest of the Navy? Yep. So... I mean, because we have such a high attrition rate, you, they were making guys go. They would give you a list of schools and that or uh, MOSs that you could be. You would have to go to that A school is what we call it before you actually show up to Buds. So, and what that was was a list of all the shittiest jobs in the Navy, like uh, painting ships and sweeping decks and shit, and the better jobs that take a higher ASVAB score and a little more intelligence to get to. So I picked OS. And then, you know, when you quit buds, then you fill the, you fill the void. So um, I picked OS, which was operations specialist. It wasn't, it wasn't like the worst thing. What, what is that? Uh, you know, like in the movie Top Gun, where they're on the carrier and they're Looking at the radars. Yeah. That's what that is. So radar. Yeah, some kind of radar. I mean, I don't know. I never actually did the job. So you actually had to go to the training, though? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How but, was that? Uh, I mean, it's kind of like purgatory. You know, I didn't really take it that seriously mm -hmm. uh, when I got there. So everybody in that training environment knows you're going to be assessing to be a SIL. Yeah. How many of there were you in your class that were trying to be a SIL? Mm, there was, I mean, there was a handful, not a whole lot, maybe, I mean, that's a long time ago and it's hard to remember, but, uh, maybe five out of 30, maybe. And so you go through this training, kind of checking the block, but that's your fallback plan. It's the Navy's plan for you. If you fail, that's the job that you're going to do if you fail out of buds. Yes. It's the Navy's fallback plan, not, not no, yours. No. Um, you get to buds, and uh, were you a swimmer? Were you? I mean, I, I always. My uncle was in the Navy. My my dad was in the Army, and he always wanted to be a. My uncle wanted me to be a SEAL. And my dad obviously wanted me to be a Green Beret. There's kind of this feud, but I told my my uncle, I'm like, I can't swim. I mean, I could swim, but I'm not an expert swimmer. Did you have like a swimming background prior to going to, to Buzz or did you have to learn everything from scratch? No, I was, I mean, I thought I was a swimmer, but I wasn't. 
Uh, I never, I mean, I took swimming lessons and shit like that. I was extremely comfortable in the water. Uh, grew up, my dad had a lake lot. We had a, uh, a ski boat, so I grew up water skiing and tubing, and my dad used to, you know, throw my ass around in the water and rough me up a little bit. So I was really, really comfortable in the water. Um, but I was anything but a fast swimmer, if that makes sense. So the technique, my technique was horrible. Um, but as far as, you know, like getting the shit knocked out of you and drown proofing and all that, I, it didn't really, none of that bothered me. How old were you when you went to Bud's? When I showed up to Bud's, I, I was either getting ready to turn 19 or had just turned 19. I'd have to look at the dates, but uh, I enlisted at 18, uh, left right after high school, graduated in May, and uh, left one July. So, um, yeah, when I got to Bud's, it was either... I was either late 18 or 19 years old or early 19. I know, you know, some, one of the things that, uh, is, is kind of different about you in, in the context of, um, in the context of mentoring, uh, young men and, and even women that want to be in the military is the fact that you don't hold back in telling people that if they want to try, if they want to be something successful, they need to stop being pussies and just fucking do it. Yeah. Because a lot of people, a lot of people are hesitant to just even put their name in the hat to volunteer to do something. Where does that mindset come from? Um, being that you went into buds and you just did it, um, and 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 how did that work out for you uh, developing your mindset in buds? Are you asking why I'm such a hard ass when people are asking yeah, for yeah. buds I advice? Mean, I mean, you you fucking you rip these kids new ones, and I, and I kind I like that about you, right? Because you're you're direct and you don't hold anything, as opposed to some guys who are like trying to catering them through it. You just tell them like, hey, dude, you could sit here and ask all the questions and pretend to be something, or you could just get off your ass and do something. Yeah, uh, it's for a lot of reasons, you know. I mean. When I went through, when you went through, we didn't have any social media. We didn't have anybody to reach out to. It was go to the fucking recruiter and figure it out. And if you want to do it, then you do it, you know? Uh, we didn't have all this open, store, open source, you know, stuff or guys marketing themselves and... and uh, we couldn't Google shit, right? I yeah, mean, it's so easy. there was no easy. Google. I mean, it was yeah. fucking dial-up. So, so there's that, and then to listen, to listen to all the people that want advice, <clears throat> most of them are older than me, you know, or older than what I was. Well, you know, I don't know how many DMs I'll get that are, you know, guys that are approaching 30 or in their young, you know, low 30s that are still contemplating, and I think... If you want to go in the military, especially in a special operations unit, that's not something that just is spur of the moment. We're like, you know, I think I might want to do that. That's something that you've thought about for a long time. And if I did it when I was 
18 years old, then you should be able to do it, you know, when you're 30. Mm -hmm. And and then when I post a picture of what I looked like back then, uh, you know, as an 18 year old. As a fucking child. Literally, I mean, I yeah. can show you a picture. Prepubescent. On, on my first deployment, I looked like a fucking Asian T-boy. Yeah. You know? You're half Japanese, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I just, you know, honestly, I just don't have any sympathy for that. And that's not in my business plan to mentor people to get there. And if, if you do, that's great. But I feel like we didn't have that going through. And a part of me almost feels like that takes away from the experience. You know, I don't think you should be necessarily groomed to go in. If you need a little motivation, that's cool. You know, that I get it. But if, if you're going to DM me and ask me questions and, and, and waste my fucking time before you even talk to a recruiter, I, you know, it, it irks me. Yeah. So, you know, if you have a legitimate question and you've done your research, then I, I will bend over backwards for you. But what, what was your experience in buds? Like, I mean, I mean, you have varying experience with buds and obviously hell week and everything else. Are there significant moments that stand out to you about buds and, and what did it, what did it do to kind of create who you are today? Um, I did a lot. I mean, some good, some bad. Uh, my first impression when I got there was, holy shit, I don't know if I should be here. I'm, I'm pretty fucking young, and uh, I weigh about a buck 45 soaking wet. And when I got there, it was after September 11th, and there were guys in my class that had already been to combat and back, a lot of Marines had already been over there and back and it was intimidating you know i mean it was i mean fuck i was like five days past puberty maybe yeah. <laughs> and and uh you're there with guys that are you know fully matured and ripped and tough and had been there and done what I wanted to do and and then you see him quit and you're like holy shit if that fucking guy quit then uh, mm-hmm. I don't stand a chance well I mean and then and then you see it you know you doesn't have anything to do with how you look or what you did <clears throat> prior to so that was kind of my first impression I was I was just scared shitless and I didn't have much confidence in myself uh, to make it, to be honest with you. And, and then we phased up and I just kept going. What, what was it? What was the, what was the thing inside of you that fucking made you like, Hey, I'm fucking standing in this. Was it, was it fear of failure? Was it going back to that job on the radar? What, what was keeping you going? Uh, actually, the only thing that kept me going was I never wanted to let my old man down. So it got to the point, I didn't really have many problems. The first day was hard. We had an in-doc period, which I think lasts five weeks. So you get like a five-week indoctrination period, which is a fucking joke. Uh, and then you phase up for one one day, 
And when you're an in doc, it's kind of like, man, if this is it, this is going to be a fucking cakewalk, you know? And then you phase up for one, one day. Uh, and that's when you put your, your green helmet on. <clears throat> you go from red helmet to green helmet? Now you go from green helmet to blue helmet to red helmet. Okay. Uh, but you put the green helmets on. It's, um, and I remember after the first day, I woke up for day two and I, I could barely get my sorry ass out of bed. I was so fucking sore. Uh, could barely walk, but I was like, ah, you know, this this will wear off. And it did. And so after the first day, it really, I mean, it was, I'm not going to say it was easy, but I didn't think about quitting until we got to Hell Week. And once we got to Hell Week, that's when I started thinking about quitting. And um, I only thought about it one time and I was freezing my ass off, uh, probably borderline hypothermic. And uh, I was actually gonna quit. And then my buddy uh, and my bow crew kind of slapped me across the face and said, hey, what the fuck are you doing? And uh, just snapped me out of it. And the first thing that went through my head was, you didn't go to college, you were kind of a fuck up in high school, you know, let's, let's finish this one. And uh, I didn't want to call my dad and tell him I fucking quit. In fact, I saw Hell Week go through, and uh, there was a Hell Week that went through, and Father's Day was in the middle of the Hell Week, and I remember them making call them making the quitters call their fucking dad oh, on the shit. bullhorn so that the entire they'd be like hey dad happy father's day i fucking quit today and, wow uh, yeah and i didn't want to be that guy i didn't know you know i don't think you know now i don't think my dad would have really i mean i know he's proud but whatever we would have got through it but uh that's what kept me going was i didn't want to let him down and and that was the only time I really thought about it was, um, I don't know, maybe two o'clock in the morning, freezing my ass off. We were getting surf tortured and, and uh, I didn't have any skin left on my crotch and you know, the chafing was kicking in and it fucking sucked. So, but um, yeah, I snapped out of it and that was that. Asian culture, was that part of it or was it just the way your dad was? Cause I know, you know, speaking from obviously experience with having an Asian mother who's very disciplined and the culture is very uh, uh, rich in discipline and honor and integrity and all these value systems that have been obviously in the Asian culture for thousands of years. Was there part of that that you noticed compared to your peers? Because some people don't grow up with that. I mean, some people don't have that that level of discipline, or was it just because you loved your father and just didn't want to disappoint him? Uh, it was both. It was both. We did grow up with that, and uh, with the kind of a little bit of the Asian culture, not quite as uh, hard ass as my grandma was, but um, but it was there. But I I personally felt like I had done nothing but let my dad down over and over and over again, you know, going through junior high and high school. And uh, I just didn't want to do that again. So I overcompensated. <laughs> but 
that's a good way to overcompensate. I mean, out of all the things you could have accomplished, you get through uh, buds and or not through buds, but through Hell Week, and then you start doing your training. Did you find a lot of that training to be easy? Not easy in the sense that you breeze through it, but compared to buds or uh, com- compared to Hell Week, uh, attainable. Were you able to just get through that? I didn't find it easy. I thought it was going to be easy. And uh, I thought, in fact, I got cocky after Hell Week. And, and uh, I was like, ah, oh, you know, this is, nobody fucking leaves after Hell Week, right? Uh, wrong. And no, it was hard. I, like when we were just talking about swimming, the two mile, two nautical mile ocean swims used to do every Tuesday that was like the biggest pain in my ass because I was not a fast swimmer at all. So that was challenging. And then there's always, you know, you hit your benchmark and you know, whether it's land nav or uh, diving or demo or shooting quals or whatever the hell it is. I mean, every week's a new test and um, they were all extremely challenging. So, it wasn't, it wasn't as much pain and torture and freezing your ass off as it was in first phase and pre-Hell Week. But then there's the, it's time to perform uh, to the highest level. And, and uh, I mean, every one of those fucking tests, other than the runs were easy for me, but uh, everything else was always a challenge. How long did how, how long does Bud's last total? Uh, it's about six seven months. Six seven, yes, about seven months because you got to if you make it through uh, without getting rolled, it's about seven seven months. You got a a month a five week end dock, and then each phase is roughly two months. So yeah, but not very many people uh, make it without getting rolled. So I got rolled. I think I was there for maybe eight months. You what you what do you mean? So you rolled what phase? I rolled first phase, which is the beginning phase. Yes, that's the yeah. Why why did you roll? I rolled because I was a dumbass and I didn't study for the first phase exam. So which is a joke, but. Uh, and they failed. Like it's a written test. It's a written test. You yeah. failed a fucking written test. I failed a fucking written test. Damn. Yep. And they recycled you the beginning. All the way to one one day. They told me I was going to have to do Hell Week again. And uh, did you have to do Hell Week again? They started me in it. And then they pulled you out? Yeah. So they're just fucking with you. Yeah. They just wanted to see if I would do it again. See if you would quit. Yeah. And you didn't quit. And you're like, what was your, what was your fucking head thinking? when you were going into Hell Week for the second time? Were you just like, fuck, or like I already know what's gonna happen, just go to my happy place? Yeah, I mean, I was like, well, fuck it, I did it once, we'll just fucking knock it out again, you know? What was it like when they told you you didn't have to do it again? Oh man, dude, we were, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, uh, it was like walking on water. We were getting surf tortured and- uh, On the first day? The first night. It first starts night, at yeah. night, yeah. And uh, we're, we did the whole breakout thing, which if you see on Discovery Channel, it's when they're out there with the, 
with the with the belt feds and throwing flashbangs and arties and shit all over the place and and you run out of the tent and so we went through that and then they put us in the surf zone and uh made our boat teams and all this other shit and uh when we were getting surf tortured i heard there was three of us that failed and uh they called our names out and it was like walking on water i don't think i've ever ran so fast in my fucking life but uh they called us out front and center and told us hey go put your brown shirts back on which is uh what you get after you get out of hell week you start with a white shirt end up with a brown shirt and if you make it and uh, said that uh, basically we'd just be helping out with the Hell Week. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, so you guys were like, fuck yeah. Yeah. Thank God. We did have a hint. We had a hint that it wasn't going to happen again. So. Yeah. Did you, uh, you get, did you get sleep? Were you able to go to sleep like normal schedules? Yeah. During the help? Yeah. It Damn. Was, it was actually wound up being like the easiest part of being at Bud's once I got, Wow. you know. But I had to go through the first... All that shit again, and yeah, and uh, it was definitely a mind fuck. Do you think it helped with your conditioning or your mindset? Did it did it do anything beneficial for you? I mean, it's the first time you failed. I mean, I definitely learned a lesson. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think I got any extra training value out of getting my ass beat. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, what about? Let's talk talk to us about um. I'm always fascinated with the the day or the moment that you know you've made it, uh, whether that's the pinning of your trident or the moment in which you you told your graduate you're going to graduate. What was it like receiving your trident and actually becoming a Navy SEAL? And who who pinned your trident on you? Uh, well, <clears throat> after buds, you go to SQT and then you get your trident, um, but. The commanding officer, Rick Smethers, uh, pinned my trident on me. And then, you know, we have like our little ritual where you, all the boys punch it into your chest, which was awesome. You know, it feels good, actually. You was know. it? Does it have two pins on it? Actually, two? Three. Three. Yeah, three pins. And they just continue to punch it into your yeah, chest. Yeah, I got punched through a fucking bathroom door. It was awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, you know, I never, I didn't even want to get my uniform uh, made up. They, When you are approaching the end of SQT, they tell you, you need to get your uniforms, you need to get your tridents, you need, you know, your, on your cami uniforms, your dress uniforms, and, and all that shit. And I didn't want to fucking touch a trident until it was official, you know. So it felt really really weird i didn't tell anybody that oh man i'm like i'm graduating or i didn't do any of that i i didn't i was so scared of jinxing myself because i'd seen guys do it i'd seen guys get duis all the way up to the very end and they pull it you know they're like up oh, yep you're done or they fail the last the last training exercise or they get hurt or whatever and uh so I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to fuck with it. I just waited all the way until that day. How proud was your dad the day that you received, or how proud were you and and your father the day you received your trident? Oh man, it was, it was epic. 
it was awesome. Yeah. Did he say anything to you? Yeah, I mean, it, when you get your, back then when you get your trident, nobody is allowed to witness that ceremony other than SEALs and the guys graduating with you. So it was just a phone call. And uh, I mean, that's pretty much what he said, was just, I'm proud of you. The families come to the, gra they don't come to the graduation? They can thing? come to the buds. Back then they could come to the buds graduation. Which didn't mean you were getting your trident. You don't get your trident after buds. Wow, okay. So, so you get it after small unit tactics. You get it after SQT, which basically SQT is, yeah, what is that? SEAL qualification training. So oh, shit. You go to buds and... SQT. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> and um, after buds, I mean, buds is all basic infantry tactics. Yeah. And... Um, when you go to SQT, that's kind of when you start to learn how to be an operator. How to be an operator. Mm. That's when they start refining everything. And uh, so, yeah. Wow. So he told you he was proud of you. Yeah. How'd you feel? I felt like a million bucks, man. It was awesome. All right. So you get through buds and you get to be assigned to your first SEAL team. When you check in, you're how old when you when you actually arrive to your first SEAL team? Uh, 20. 20. 20 years, years old. old. Not even old enough to drink, huh? Nope. You get there and um, you're on the East Coast, correct? Yeah. How was that How was that signing in and being assigned to a SEAL platoon? How was that experience? Oh, man, it was, I was nervous, really nervous because uh, I had heard all the stories, but it felt, it, I mean, it was... I couldn't wait to get there, you know. Uh, you know, you spend all that time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears to become, I mean, what you've always dreamt about. And then you're getting ready to rock, walk through the front door. It's like, like, holy shit, like it's fucking go time. How do they treat you? How do, how do young SEALs who are just arriving to their platoon out of buds get treated? Uh, everybody treats you different. Um, I was expecting, honestly, to get treated like shit, but I didn't. I showed up and uh, they sent me right to a school. It was kind of a bullshit school, but I showed up, met my platoon chief. That was obviously intimidating. Um, but I showed up during ProDev, which is when everybody's going to schools or, and or spending time with family. So I showed up. Went right to a school. We were supposed to go to Afghanistan. I found that out, so I was even more stoked that I was uh, going right to the show. But um, yeah, it, surprisingly, everybody was in my platoon was pretty welcoming. Uh, the other platoons weren't so welcoming. <laughs> but uh, really, now was it put like platoon on platoon, like the platoon versus platoon? Yeah, a lot of times it's it's kind of like this was before they came out with squadrons and and task units and all that shit that we were still calling them platoons. Uh, so it's you and your sister platoon, and uh, there was a handful of new guys that showed up with us. But um, and so the other what nowadays we would call task units, which is two platoons, they would, I mean, they weren't so friendly, but actually. 
everyone I met from from my platoon uh, was like surprisingly super welcoming. Did, when you arrived here, number one, how how many platoons are there in one SEAL team? Eight. There's eight platoons. Okay, wow, that's like a battalion size element. Well, there's about sixteen guys for platoon. Sixteen guys per platoon, and you guys are broken down into teams, or is one platoon the the unit, the lowest? One, yeah, that's it. Okay, one and then platoon. were you on the were you in the teams when they broke you down in specific jobs or roles? Like you had snipers, you had JTACs, you had uh, medics. Is that how you were broken down, or how you how were you guys broken down? Uh, kind of like that. But it always changes. So with us, you might be a sniper for, uh, we also call a rotation one platoon. So rotation would be ProDev, which is all your schools and shit. Then you go to Workup, which is kind of going through all the different training blocks, CQB, shooting package, land, uh, land warfare, diving, MarOps, VBSS, jumps, all that shit and then you go to sit which is you start working more with the sister platoon you start working more with the west coast teams you start working with the army counterparts and and then you go to deployment so you have like a train up period yeah prior to, to, to rolling out yeah um tell us about your first combat deployment how did that go down first combat deployment was to Afghanistan and Red Wing just Red Wings has just happened and we showed up to relieve those guys early we actually went from team eight surged over to team two uh, relieved those guys obviously very tragic and the entire op tempo had completely slowed down so you had re you had ripped in to replace team 10 yeah. Well, okay. And now we were I wasn't on the recovery mission or anything like that. We just I mean, there was not anybody left. Yeah. Um so we 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 did that on Red Wings because you you obviously have intimate knowledge of of a lot of things that took place. Was that an entire platoon from SEAL Team 10 that yeah. basically lost their lives? Yeah. How many guys survived that? Uh, one. One guy. Yeah. And that's your buddy, right? Uh, Marcus Luttrell. Oh, Luttrell was the only guy yeah. from that task unit. That was on that op or the QRF. Yeah. Uh, that's it. So nobody was left from that platoon? No. Wow. Not that was on the op. No, yeah, yeah. So. Um, so obviously a, a huge impact to the SEAL team com or the SEAL community. What did you guys hear about it and, and how did that affect you guys? I mean, that was the biggest loss in SEAL team history uh, up to that time until Extortion 17. Mm -hmm. So it was a huge blow. And <clears throat> and then you started seeing uh, you know, the videos that Al-Qaeda started putting out on Al Jazeera, and I mean, it was, it was, it was fucking gut-wrenching. Yeah. You know. I saw and, those videos downrange. 
My yeah. team actually recovered one of those videos. No shit. In a raid. Yeah. I don't know if it was distributed already. We didn't get that word, but we discovered an SSC, one of the videos. Yeah, it was distributed because I actually, I used to watch that video every single time before we went out on an op. Yeah. Yeah, it was like, it was, it was like my ritual. Yeah. What did, what did that, uh, you know, you're in, you're in combat as a SIL and what's your, what's your mentality in being in war and did the rest of your platoon or the rest of your task unit feel the same way that you felt when you were going out in, on these combat ops? Were yeah. You guys motivated for combat? I mean, everybody was extremely hungry. Mm-hmm. And uh, so every time we went out, it was, I mean, you know the deal. That was, I mean, we were the next guys in and uh, we were we were ready. You know, we wanted revenge and we wanted to go on as many ops as we could. We didn't give a shit if they were high profile. We didn't care. We didn't really care about anything. We just wanted to operate. And uh, so anytime we left that wire, we were looking to pick a fight. What did you learn from your first combat rotation about combat? Did you did was there anything eye opening that you learned about yourself, about your your specific skill sets? Any lessons learned? Um, there was, but not in Afghanistan. I mean, nothing is from that specific deployment is coming up coming to mind. Um, Actually, the, the first thing that comes to mind is op tempos aren't always that high. And, uh, you know, we'd, we just had a huge loss. There was a lot of uh, beef between headsheds, and uh, we didn't get to do near as much shit as I would have liked to happen. A lot of risk aversion. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I started to realize this shit can get political and I didn't, I didn't like that at all. Yeah. You have no control at the, the task tactical level to yeah. do, to do uh, anything about that. You yeah. go to, you go to Iraq and that's where things change, right? Yeah. So then, uh, it, it was that, it was actually that point that made me want to get out. You know, we did some shit. We had some shots fired. We took some ticks. We hit some compounds, but, it wasn't enough for me. And uh, so <clears throat> I decided uh, this probably isn't for me. I thought we were going to be going out two times a night, <laughs> but uh, that wasn't happening. So then uh, I volunteered to go out uh, and jump in with my sister platoon. And that's when we started really, you know, getting to do some trigger pulls and, and, uh, saving lives and getting into some shit and uh the first lesson learned the first thing we learned was that comes to my mind is uh green tip was uh shit Mm. so we were uh i mean guys weren't going down yeah i've had that same experience so which um I remember the first first engagement we had, uh, everybody thought they were fucking missing. 
<laughs> so, staring at their gun like what the fuck yeah, is happening like right literally now? like what the fuck is wrong with this like uh did i lose my zero and so which was fucking surprising because that was uh would have been 2005 mm -hmm. and uh so we switched our loadouts and we started running uh 277 277 grain, one green tip, 277 grain, one green tip, and uh, and then, you know. Stacking rounds, so you have the ability to yeah, things change. pierce a little bit of armor or pierce a little bit of pot steel, and then, yeah, I, we did the same thing. I stacked my mags the same way. Um, when you're in combat, were there any experiences that you had that were traumatic that, that just fucked you up that that changed your view on, on war or was it a, was it a, just an all around decent fucking trip? It was a good trip. Uh, we didn't lose anyone. Hmm. In fact, that we didn't lose anybody at the team, um, that deployment at all. And, uh, I mean, yeah, there were, it got pretty hairy sometimes, but, um, I mean, it, it was, Honestly, man, it was just fucking awesome. Like, I, I loved it, and uh, I just wanted to do more of it. So you get to a point where you're, you know, this is the, the your second trip to combat, and you get to a point where you're, like, getting disgruntled about trying to fight to go to combat, because you told me that offline. What were some of the challenges that you were facing when you, were, when you wanted to be more involved, but you just weren't getting the opportunities that you thought you should have had? Uh, I think it was, I'm sorry, can you, can you, were you, like you wanted to go to combat and kill bad guys, but yeah. there was a period of time where you weren't able to do that and you, you were potentially looking at UCOM, uh, was there, was there something that led, what led you to the point where you got out of the Navy? Well, so my first deployment was a UCOM mm -hmm. and I couldn't fucking stand it. I mean, it was just a party, you know, and, and when I, that's when I, were you not a partier? Oh man, I loved to party. Yeah, yeah. Burn it the fuck down. I loved. I mean, what the fuck else am I gonna do? I'm mm -hmm. sitting in fucking Germany, you know. So, yeah, it was pretty much hit the gym and hit the bar, and that's it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great time, but I mean, shit, I could have done that in fucking college and without going through all that, you know, buds and SKT and and. Uh, for shit pay and all that shit. <clears throat> and when I was sitting on my ass in Germany, listening to a CO brief me on how my, uh, my counterparts, other platoons are getting 102 kills in one night in Afghanistan. And I'm sitting there listening to this hungover. I, I mean, it just, it just angered me, mm. you know? Uh, and, 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 and then, to come to the realization that the only fucking reason I'm here is because some general or admiral doesn't want to give up an asset that they'll never fucking utilize in 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 Europe. You know what I mean? It's just because you guys were on the on the hook for the yeah. Call. I mean, you're on the hook, but you, the admirals over there is never going to fucking release you. Yeah, and. When I when I kind of and I was young, you know, I mean, shit, I turned twenty one my first platoon, and uh, and being that young and and kind of putting those puzzle pieces together, I was just like, what the fuck is this shit? Why are we sitting on our ass in fucking Germany, 
when every platoon had to or every team had to shit out two new pl two platoons to the team ahead of them in the rotation just so you know we could make quota or <clears throat> you know and the reason you're doing that is because we're losing guys who are in fucking combat so why not draw from you know the places where we're not doing shit we, nobody was doing anything in fucking south america then nobody was doing anything in europe you know, I mean, the shit, the only thing that's happened in Europe is, uh, what, fucking Kosovo and Bosnia. And that was done in the 90s. Yeah, you know, I mean, so I was, I was, that first deployment really fucking pissed me off. So you, were, you still had res residual fucking anger over the first trip. You get your little taste of combat, your second trip, and then you're like, fuck this, I'm going to make a decision to get out. Was it a deliberate decision? Yeah. And did you have a plan? No, no. Uh, I mean, we saw we saw a little bit of combat in Afghanistan. Then we saw a good amount in Iraq, uh, mostly sniper shit, uh, counter ID stuff. But <clears throat> it was enough to make me happy. I can tell you that. And uh, but then I just didn't want to wind up doing. I didn't want to wind up sitting on my ass again in, in fucking Germany or South America or anywhere, you know. I didn't want to sit on my ass anywhere. I wanted to operate every fucking day, every night, as much as I could. I didn't give a shit about anything except that. And, I, you know, I think my expectations were a little bit unrealistic. And um, You're young. I mean, how old are you at this time? 24. 24 years old. So you make a decision to get out. Did you have regrets after you got out? Like, was there any fucking regret? Yeah, there was a lot of regret. Um, there was a, there was a, a shit ton of regret because it was either, for me, it was either screen, give green team a shot, maybe I'll wind up over a damn neck or get out. Um, there was no in between. And so I figured I had wanted to get out for since my first deployment, so I might as well give it a whirl, you know, see if I like being in the civilian world, and, and uh, if I don't, then I, fuck it, I'll, you know, just come back. What'd you get out and do? <laughs> How long before, obviously, you had a lull time, which we all do, uh, between ending your active military career and then doing something else like contracting we'll get to that but what'd you do in the fucking interim i became a realtor what yeah so you're a 24 year old 25 year old realtor i'm a 25 year yeah 24 year old realtor uh still shit in fucking baghdad chow and in uh, virginia beach and uh saying i moved to st louis you moved to st louis yep St. Louis is a fucking shithole. It is. It, it is. Why'd you move? You, your family, obviously. You moved back to St. Louis because family? Uh, my girlfriend at the time. Ugh. Damn. Yeah. She must have been a 10 to go back to fucking St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> um, you go back to St. Louis and you're doing real estate. You get your real estate license as a Navy SEAL veteran, 25 years old. Yeah. How'd that work out for you? Yeah, it was horrible. Lasted about six months. 
And uh, you told me you sold one house. I sold one fucking house, and that's it. How was that commission? The horrible. <laughs> yeah, it was horrible. It was yeah, you know, I just I read uh, Donald Trump's book and in, in in Guantanamo, uh, we were doing some like we were flying over to Haiti and doing all these recons and shit, and it was boring. And I read this fucking Donald Trump book and got all fired up about business. So when I got out, I decided I was gonna uh, become a realtor and flip houses, and it just it was fucking horrible. How long did that last? Six months total, and then? Six months, it lasts about six months. Then I got into a fire academy and didn't like that. And that's when uh, one of the guys that I was in Iraq with called me up and said, hey, you might want to look at this uh, contracting thing. And so, so I went. So were you in the fire academy and you just dropped out or did you finish the fire academy? No, nah, I left. I didn't really, I mean, I, yeah, I guess I dropped out. Yeah. Whatever. But, uh, you know, I was in the fire academy and I, in the, the thing that I was looking forward to, to be honest with you, I didn't really care about being a firefighter. I was just looking for that camaraderie again. And, uh, you did know. Did you feel fucked up? Were you lost then? Oh, fuck yeah. Mm. I was total alcoholic. And, um. I don't see you as alcoholic because you drink one glass of wine and you turn red, you get hot. Yeah. But you used to throw down. Oh, man. Big time. <laughs> Big time. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I went to the fire academy because I was looking for that camaraderie. I was looking for that brotherhood. I was looking for something to maybe, you know, get that, that rush again. And I got there, and it just wasn't the same caliber, guys. You know, it was a lot of pushing people through the program. It was a lot of motivating people to do shit they should already be able to do. And um, it just, you know, it just wasn't for me. You get this call from your buddy, and he tells you about this contracting gig. What was the contracting gig? It was the agency. You know, a lot of people don't understand, but obviously contracting is another world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's a world in which you could be involved in clandestine and covert operations. You could be operating in any country in the universe. You're getting paid a significant amount of money for your resume. How was that, how was that experience leading up to where you actually got the job. Did you know anything about the job prior to going into it, or did you just show up, vet, and then and then fucking went on your way? Well, he had called me, told me a little bit about it. I told him, fuck off, I'm never gonna work for Blackwater, right? Yeah. Uh, because I had seen those guys, you know, overseas, and... and we used to make fun it. of them. Yeah, I fucking Oh, five, early GWAT, we used to, that's what all we did. Yeah. They started showing up to the team bars in fucking Virginia Beach. And, uh, no, I couldn't stand them. I mean, I remember one guy they hired from, the, like, the local fucking gear shop. And... Wow. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, then... So I told, I told my buddy, I was like, nah, man, I'm not going to... There's no way in hell. No way in hell. 
I hate fucking contractors. I'm never going to do that shit. I've seen those guys. And uh, he just, he was like, look, dude, he's like, this is, it's a little bit different. You, you know, everybody is uh, kind of like us. So, you know, just give me your resume and, uh, <laughs> and trust me. So I said, fuck it. And, and uh, I did. You submitted your resume, you got picked up, and then talk to me about the vetting process, how difficult it was. And I know, I know, you know, obviously there's some things that we can't talk about with that specific skill set and job, but was it what you were looking for? Was it, was the process to get in hard? Uh, I thought it was pretty challenging, to be honest with you. Um, well, let me... I thought the, I thought the shooting calls were challenging. Uh, I thought the, the tactics were easy. Uh, I thought they were really basic and, and fairly simple. The shooting calls, I don't, I, I, I just never really felt like they were on the same level. I, I felt like the shooting calls were really high and the shit that actually matters I thought I didn't think the standard was high enough <clears throat> so um, once I got through the shooting calls I thought the rest of the I thought the rest of it was pretty simple you get to the independent contract or the independent contract and job that you get and you're getting paid more money than you've probably ever fucking seen in your life as an individual and you're going overseas, you're coming back. What was that experience like? What was contracting like? I mean, it was different. You know, uh, yeah, you are making, you're making a shit ton of money, you know, or for us a shit ton of money, right? And uh, so it was definitely cool to come back and see a completely different bank account than, <laughs> than, than ever before. Um, but I mean, it, as you know, it was pretty fucking challenging, you know, uh, getting along with people and integrating with every other special operations unit. Everybody thinks their tactics are the best and the rivalry. And, and uh, it took a lot of getting used to for me. There were a lot of egos, you know, in, in, in there. And, and uh, so I just kind of stuck with my own for a while and then... <clears throat> until I kind of figured out the lay of the land and and uh, and then I wanted to go to all the outer bases because you know I figured that was my best shot at getting into something it was the least amount of drama and uh, when I looked at who was requesting to get away from the flagpoles those were all the guys that I wanted to work with. They're guys who wanted to be operational to yeah. to do something, as opposed to guys near the flagpole who just wanted the dog and pony and yeah, the, yeah, the good internet. I didn't, I didn't want anything to do with the dog and pony. I wanted to, I mean, same thing in the in, as when I was in the teams. I just wanted to fucking operate. That's it. I just wanted to do shit. I just you know, and uh, so I was always looking to go to the worst places and you're coming back from these trips and we had talked about it before but you 
decided at one point in your contracting career that you wanted to operate uh, downrange, be more involved, and that you wanted to live somewhere outside the continent, continental U.S., and you decided that you wanted to live in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Um, Colombia, even I mean, even today, obviously, is a dangerous fucking place, and you choose Colombia. I'm curious to why you wanted to go to Colombia in the first place, and then how was that experience for you? So I went down to Colombia because it's when I joined the SEAL teams. What I wanted, one of my big, um, one of the big influences uh, that influenced me was the Vietnam War. I always wanted to operate in, in the jungle, and I always wanted to do the jungle warfare shit. And so when it came time to fill out our dream sheets, I wanted to go to Team 4, which was South America. Because at that time, I thought, you know, shit was going down there. You watch Clear and Present Danger, that's what it was. <laughs> so you knew it's up. But um, anyways, and I never did other than Haiti, and I did some, uh, some J sets, uh, you know, uh, in Panama, I'd never, I had never, I had about, I don't know, maybe two months of jungle warfare, and I really dug it. But I never did go do the counter-drug shit, you know, so I wanted to go to Colombia. And um, what started out, what was supposed to be a marlin fishing trip, wound up being a big party trip. But uh, now it was... I started feeling like a little bit of a rush down there because most people are scared to go there. And for a long time, I didn't see any other Americans other than uh, my best my, my best friend at the time who is dead now. But- um, Or you were living down there with him. I, that's where actually we met, was down there. And he had been living there for a while, and I just went on a little two-week vacation with an with an with another seal, and uh, it was just it was just fucking cool, like kind of being off the grid like that, you know. And uh, I went back home after which that. was what was home at this time when you're contracting. At that time, it was Cape Coral, Florida, and. I went back home and I had a surgery. I got hurt and uh, I had a surgery. And as soon as I could walk again, I went back (laughs) down there uh, open-ended. And uh, I wound up uh, calling it home for the better part of five years, I think. You were in what part of Columbia? Uh, I started out going to Cartagena, and then um, I started seeing English speakers. I started seeing Americans. And so you wanted to be f- as far away from English people as as possible. Yeah, you know, I went down there, and it was just fucking cool. I mean, nobody spoke English. 
None of the locals spoke English. I didn't see any other Americans. I wasn't getting asked about my thoughts on the fucking wars. I wasn't getting asked about politics. Uh, you know, it, all that shit doesn't matter there. Nobody gives a fuck. And uh, I hated coming home and getting grilled all the fucking time. What do you think of this? What do you think? You know, and 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 uh, and the CIA didn't have a problem with you being down there at all. Do they have any beef with that? Uh, you know, I never asked. <laughs> yeah. But they knew you definitely were down there, though, right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I wasn't hiding anything. That's for damn sure. But um, yeah, I just I kept going, and uh, and then when when uh, when I started seeing Cartagena, when I started seeing it turning into more of a touristy town, uh, I went deeper in, and I started going to a city called Cali, which is the most dangerous city down there, and uh, Medellin, and and I checked it all out. What 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 is it about danger and the risk of living in a, a, the most dangerous place? What what attracted you to that? Uh, I mean, I think we all develop some kind of addiction to adrenaline, you know, in the rush. I mean... But were and, you getting any adrenaline out of it? Oh, I mean, yeah. Were you? Yeah. So, like, just because the things that were going on around you, you were getting spurts or surges of adrenaline? Yeah. I mean, I, I was hanging out in the worst neighborhoods. And... Uh, Some would say that's fucking crazy. Yeah, I was looking to pick a fight. And, mm. I mean... You know exactly how it is. You come home. How the hell do you come home from fucking Yemen? And, I mean, literally within 48 hours, you're in fucking Yemen getting shot at. 48 hours later, you're sitting at home. Eating Chick-fil-A. Listen to somebody bitch about, you know, the fucking TV show that they just watched. Or or their their rough day at work. And uh, I just I just didn't have any tolerance for that shit. You know, just I just felt like I couldn't fucking relate to anybody. I didn't want to hear anybody's politics. I was just angry at everything. So you just wanted to be in the shit all yeah. the time. Yeah. So I went down there and uh, hung out in some really rough places. And uh, you ever have any close calls with uh, the locals and getting fucking rolled up? Yeah. Yeah. Do tell. <laughs> Well, there was it was after the agency, but um yeah, I would have people come down, not not very many, but uh I would have my best friend growing up came down there with me and I would kind of like it was almost like I was putting training wheels on him because I didn't trust him because, I mean, he was uh, not like us. You know, he wasn't heads up. He'd never been to combat. He'd never seen anything. And, and uh, he would fucking get mouthy with people and that he didn't need to get mouthy with. And uh, they would try to kill him. And... Uh, it's funny because when I talk to him, like 
today, he, he still doesn't realize it, but when you're out at eight o'clock in the morning and you're still time went on and in the worst, in the worst neighborhoods down there and, and, and you see your buddy walk in the bathroom and then the guy that he was just having a, a tiff with follows him in with, you know, five other fucking guys. You, you know exactly what that is. And, uh, Shit like that used to happen all the time, and and uh, when did you he, guys fuck those guys up, or did you? No, would you? Fuck, there's would nothing. Would you use we, bartering and negotiation, rapport building? I had made a name for myself down there, and uh, for some fucking reason, I just had a lot of respect, and um, I, I think it's because. I was just really, uh, I was really bold down there. I didn't, I was almost overconfident. And I think that threw a lot of those, uh, narcos for a loop. <clears throat> if that makes sense, you know, I mean, no, well, they have a, I mean, the culturally, you know, machismo or like your balls, your cojones is like, what defines you there? Yeah, it, nobody fucking ma- it doesn't matter what your status is, but if you're pussy, they see through that because being macho or being a man is about how you carry yourself, how you act, yeah, the kind of those values and that ethics. So I could see how that could be be true, where they would respect that. And you're acting like a you're acting as a facilitator, mm-hmm. bringing people in, and was there pussy involved? Drugs involved, like what? What? What kind of shit drew you to that lifestyle? Well, you know, it was uh, all of the above. You know, there was a little bit of everything, or maybe a lot of everything. But uh, when I went down, when I first started going down there, it was clean. It was just clean fun, and um, good clean fun. Yeah, good clean fun. <laughs> and then the good fucking clean fun got really boring. And uh, that's when I, you know, like I said, with Cartagena, I, it was, it was like fucking Disneyland. You know what I mean? It was, it was a joke. It wasn't a challenge. There was no network to build, and and so once I started moving uh, more inland, off the coast, where the gringos don't go, that's when shit started getting weird. And, uh, yeah, I, I started hanging out in worse neighborhoods. I started building networks. I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't getting my fix from the agency anymore because I was gone. And I started doing cocaine and um, making relationships and, and climbing that ladder. And, uh, I mean, it was, I mean, that, uh, it got really fucking dark and I'm not, I'm not glorifying it and I'm not proud of it in any, in in any, any way at all, but it was filling that void for me. And every time I would go and make a deal and meet a new, a new guy, I, I wasn't sure 
you know, if I was going to come back. I mean, did you enjoy that? I mean, I, I got to imagine. I'm trying to figure out. You know, you get out, you you stop contracting. You're trying to just live your life, and then you're 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 still chasing the rainbow. Like, what are you chasing? Like, what was what would have made you happy at that point, or were you just a fucking wreck? Uh, I was just a wreck, man. I mean, I was calling. I was calling my parents and, or specifically my dad, and I was telling them, you know, like I, I got to get the fuck out of here. I'm gonna wind up dead. Um, but I, I just, I wouldn't leave because I had that fucking addiction to, um, to get, to getting that fix, that adrenaline, and so I just kept fucking diving deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, <clears throat> and. I mean, I would go to Barrio Antioquia, for example, which is, you know, one of the worst neighborhoods in Medellin. And you got to go through all these checkpoints to get there. And I mean, nobody, nobody, no fucking gringo goes to Barrio Antioquia. And here's my dumbass, and I am making it very fucking clear who I am. I'm wearing expensive ass fucking shoes. I'm wearing a Rolex watch. I'm wearing fucking $700 sunglasses. I'm, I just didn't give a fuck at all. And I wanted to be overconfident because I wanted them to look at me and go, who the fuck is that and why is he here? That dude's got some balls, you know, coming in here dressed like that. I mean, they'll stab you for your Rolex like it's nobody's business and you're never going to get fucking, and they'll never get fucking caught, you know? And, uh, <clears throat> and then going to make the deals. I mean, how they assassinate people down there is they fucking come up to you on the moped. So every time I would be in the streets down there and I would hear mopeds coming, it was just like, oh, fuck, here it comes, you know? This is it. This is how it's going to happen. And it just, it just never did. Was it a game? I mean, were you were you just pushing your limits just to see what you can get away with? Absolutely. Looking for that fix. I was totally pushing the limits. What what was the fix besides adrenaline? Was it just something you were missing? Was it a regret? Was it something fucked up in your past? Like what 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 was it? I don't know what the fuck it was to be honest with you. Mm. Uh, I just know I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be home in the U.S. And I wasn't working anymore. And I, I guess I just felt like I didn't have anything to live for. So. Like you didn't have a purpose. No, I didn't have any purpose at all. And I had no idea how to find it. So I just wanted to feel alive, you know. What's the turning point for leaving that behind? Because eventually you obviously come home. What what was the turning point? The turning point was that um, the national police started. Uh, they started following me. And um, national police is equivalent like their FBI or their fe the federalities. Yeah, and uh, they started following me. And I, you know, when I went down there, I was. I was very reckless, but I was also, you know, fairly intelligent about it. And uh, I would pay off all the right people. 
And <clears throat> so you're already, you have a system in place. I mean, you're, you're falling in their culture. A lot of these cultures are, they're built off paying people off, off corruption. Yeah. That's just, people don't understand. That's, that's normal everyday life. That's yeah. how, that's how you operate in that culture. So you're just blending into the culture. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, and I would, I would take care of who I needed to take care of. And, uh, the first guys that I started taking care of were the fucking doormen uh, that held the gates to, you know, the penthouse that I was living in uh, down there. And, uh, you know, if I went to the fucking grocery store, they were getting groceries. If I went to the liquor store, they were getting liquor. If I was fucking buying cocaine, they were getting cocaine. If I was leaving, they were getting clothes. Um, New shoes, new clothes. I mean, anything they wanted, anything that I got, they got a piece of because I knew that they controlled who came in and out of that fucking building. <clears throat> and uh, they would give me a heads up if I needed one. But at the same time, it's almost like a sin down there if they don't take advantage of the fucking gringo, right? So <clears throat> culturally, yeah, they would be going against their own if they didn't fuck over the white man. Yeah, so I came back, um, and I had gone to. I come back and uh, I'm walking up to my my apartment, and this guy stops me and tells me that uh, the police have been surveillance me and they bugged my apartment and all this other shit, right? So I'm like, ah, oh, you know, this guy's fucking full of shit. He's He's just trying to get me to pay him off. And um, I was pissed, you know, because I had trusted this guy for, for a long time. And uh, then he told me about these pictures that they had of me. <clears throat> and when he told me that, that the pictures that he had told me of were things that I was doing in uh, one of the barrios that was like two hours prior. And so I knew that I, w I was like, oh shit, this guy's like, he's telling me the fucking truth. So I went upstairs and uh, scrubbed everything and uh, tried to figure out if these guys were actually surveilling me. And uh, I didn't, you know, so I set up my own walking route and, you know, did what we do. And uh, didn't pick anything up, but I still wasn't going to take any chances. And then I just booked tickets at an internet cafe and and got the fuck out and didn't look back. And uh, which is exactly what I needed to do and what led to me finally getting my shit together and uh, getting some help. So that was like a turning point in, in the life. That was a big turning point. So you come back home and you decide that you need help. What were the things that you needed help with? You were obviously unstable at that point that you had a feeling that you were unstable. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get help right away. I, I thought maybe just leaving that place was going to be enough. And... Uh, it wasn't, you know, just, it got worse. I had ruined every relationship I'd ever built, uh, to include my family. 
<clears throat> to include my dad, you know, my, my brother, my sister. And uh, finally, I started going to therapy. And, uh, I, you know, when, once I had nothing left, I, I, I went to therapy and uh, started getting better. What is it about therapy that made you, that started to improve what you thought about yourself? I mean, I say it that way just because you start recognizing improvements in yourself because of this therapy. What was it about it that helped you? You know what I think it was? I think it was I finally had somebody to hold me accountable. Because prior to that, nobody in your life was holding you accountable. I wouldn't let anybody hold me accountable. Even if they wanted to, you just say, fuck you, I'm just doing me. Yeah. So this person, you start getting counseled, and they're telling you, you're allowing them to tell you you're fucked up. What is that experience like? Well, that's not exactly, they don't exactly tell you, at least mine wasn't telling me how fucked up I am. It was just, I, it, it, it's a long process, you know? What, it, what, is, a, what, is, a, what is an actual long, uh, or, tell us about therapy um, for those who aren't educated in how it works and how long is a long process? I went to therapy twice a week, every week for about three years. Wow, shit. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of time invested to start picking things apart yep. to rebuild you, I'm assuming, from scratch. Yeah. Was there, was there moments in that period of time that were really eye-opening to you the, that made you realize what some of the issues were? You know, it, it's, it's such a long process that you just, I, man, I don't know how to describe it, Mike, but it, it's, at first it was just, that was the only fucking thing I had. That was my job, you know? I didn't fucking have any, I didn't owe anybody anything. I didn't have anybody to hold me accountable. My only job was to show up and I was a complete fucking mess, but that was the only thing that I would stay sober for, was to show up and go to fucking therapy at 10 a.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You know, so, <clears throat> um, you know, working for the agency and working, you know, in the SEAL teams, I mean, there's tons of people holding you accountable. You have a fucking purpose, you have a job, you gotta be there on time, and, when that all stopped, you didn't, I mean, there was nobody to fucking report to. And that was it. Two hours a week. Tuesday and Thursday. And that's, that's how, you know, that's how it started, was that became the only purpose I had. While outside of the therapy, you're still going through personal issues and you're, and you're, and you're struggling. Mm -hmm. What are some of the struggles that you experienced? I know you had mentioned to me about you know, we were talking about my own, not attempt, but my own struggles with taking my own life. Because, I mean, when you lose your purpose and you lose that sense of self, you look at yourself as a liability as opposed to an asset. And it's, we're used to taking out liabilities. So it's not that difficult for our type. I mean, it happens every fucking day, right? Our type 
to take ourselves out because of that. What were some of those experiences that you had? Um, it got to the point where I just, I didn't want to live anymore, you know? Mm. And uh, so I was out at the bar again and don't really remember coming home, but uh, when I woke up, my whole fucking house smelled like fucking gasoline. And uh, <clears throat> and I, w I lived in a town home, and uh, so I woke up and and I'm, I was I was just like, what the fuck is that smell? You know, I don't have a gas stove or anything there. It was all electric, and so I started trying to find it. I go downstairs and uh, I can hear something in the garage, and I go to open the door, and the fucking doorknob's like hot to the touch. And then I touch the door, and the door's actually hot to the touch. And I was like, holy shit, what the fuck is that? And um, even that morning after I woke up, I, I was like, oh, man, if I open this door, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen, you know? And um, But I, w I was like, maybe I'll get blown up. I don't know. So I just opened the fucking door. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously nothing happened. I'm sitting right here. But <clears throat> my car was fucking running. And... I remember seeing my car running and I was like, holy shit, what the fuck is, like, why is my car running? How long has it been running? Holy shit, I don't want to fucking open the garage door because I'm scared there might be an electrical spark. And, uh, you know what I mean? Then you're looking at what, you're looking at what just happened. And <clears throat> so I went and shut the car off and when I went to, you know, when I, when I opened the door, I see my seat, my front seats, uh, all the way reclined. And, uh, so I fucking took a nap in there and with the car running with the car. I mean, yeah, with the car running and then, so I turned the car off and, uh, opened the garage. I just said, fucking, I opened the garage door to let it air out and I start retracing my steps. And then I look on the couch and, uh, there's one of my Glocks that I don't carry every day. And I mean, there's no reason for it to be on the couch. So I knew what that was. And I must have fallen asleep there and then wound up in my room. And so I made a phone call, one to my best friend, Dave Rutherford. And then, uh, I told my doc about it and, uh, that was the last time I drank vodka. Were you leading up to this point? I mean, obviously alcohol was a, a component to some of the issues that you were, you were drowning your issues yeah. in alcohol. Was this a, a, a crossroads or pinnacle moment for you to, to change shit drastically? Or did you fall back into the same routines? No, that was the that was the final wake up call. Um, that's when I that's when I finally decided to pull my fucking head out of my ass and and uh, you know I I guess I just figured that I don't know how the hell I survived that. I mean my fucking gas tank melted on my garage floor and because of the heat. 
because of the, of the heat, doors the closed. Heat, the gas tank melted and fucking gas was leaking onto the exhaust and it still didn't go up in flames. And <clears throat> I've never been uh, like a big religious guy, but I mean, there's no way I should be fucking sitting here right now, <clears throat> right? I mean, the fumes alone should have killed me. Then to leave the car running and have the fucking tank melt leaking gas onto the fucking exhaust. I mean, come on. While you're napping in it? Yeah. And then to go in, grab a gun, pass out on the couch, which that's what I did because that's where my clothes were, and then go upstairs and then wake up and just, like, it's nothing. I mean, it, it hit me like a ton of fucking bricks right then. As soon as I, right before I made my first phone call, I, I, I was like, holy shit. What's the drastic help that came after that fact? Was it additional counseling? Was it... Once again, it was... I mean, I was still in counseling, obviously, but uh, it was being held accountable again. You know, um, I remember my doctor said... She asked what I was doing before that happened, and uh, it was vodka, and, and uh, I had kicked, kicked the Coke uh, a while before that, actually. And uh, it was just, it was vodka and, and uh, sleeping pills, and she asked me to promise her that I would never drink vodka again. And, uh, you know, I, I upheld that. Do you have any regrets with anything that you've done? Nah, I think it was all a learning experience, you know, and um, I sure as fuck wouldn't be who I am today without have gone through all of that. What advice would you give somebody who's starting their journey, understanding all the difficult roads ahead? What advice would you give that young man or woman that's uh, about to begin that same path? Like coming into civilian life after, after combat? Mm -hmm. Take it easy, man. <laughs> Chill the fuck out. Um, uh, no, I mean, that sounds a lot easier said than done, but uh, just try to fucking enjoy life. You know, you're not, you, you have to realize you're not gonna find your purpose you know, the day you separate from the military. It's just not gonna happen. You know, give your, your family the time that, you know, make up for all that lost time. I mean, you owe it to them, you do. And try to find hobbies, you know, find what, you, it's gonna take a minute to find what you're passionate about. We didn't have fucking time to be passionate about anything at all other than being an operator, right? I mean, there is no time for anything but that. And so be patient, you know, find some patience and uh, you know, the, the passions will come, your hobbies will come and leave the old shit behind, you know, make new friends. You'll find people that you can connect with that, you know, you don't have, when I got out, I thought, I can only connect to people that have been in combat, and that's just not fucking true. It's, it's not true. Give other people a chance. Just because they didn't do what you did doesn't mean you can't connect with them.
What's the future for you and Vigilance Elite moving forward from this day? Media. And um, it's something know, you enjoy, right? That's your fucking passion. I love media. Yeah. And, you know, that's the first time I've ever um, shared some of those experiences with anybody. But I like using my dark times to show people that, hey, man, like, I've been where you're at, and there is a fucking way out of it. You just gotta, you gotta find the way out, and uh, and if, if you stick with it, you will fucking become happy. Where do people find your uh, channels at if they've never uh, looked? Vigilance Elite across all the boards: uh, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. Vigilance Elite or Sean Ryan seven six two. Sean Ryan, uh, brother, thanks for having me in your house, number one. And uh, it's been a cool experience being here with you. And I haven't seen your face in so long. And uh, last time we were downrange together, uh, we've been talking online periodically. But to get out here and spend some time with you, man, it's been amazing. It's been a good time. Well, I'm glad you made it, dude. Finally. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, I can't wait to have you out in uh, Prescott. Uh, lastly... You have a plan to do a podcast as well, right? Yep. Tell me a little bit about that, that, that podcast and that plan. Well, I'd love to tell you about that, Mike. You're going to be the first guest. <laughs> so I'm pumped. Um, yeah, we're going to kick it off tomorrow morning, and it's going to be more of a, uh, well, actually, you talked me into the releasing it on uh, iTunes and all that stuff, but... We're going for the late night show look. It'll be a little bit different than what everybody else is doing. Uh, it'll be on YouTube, and then you've talked me into doing audio only, so it'll be on all the other uh, podcast platforms as well. And it'll be a very broad spectrum of guests. So, you know, I'll start with old friends like you and uh, start breaching into other stuff. That, so uh, this is more about your passions and yep. about talking to people instead of just the tactical space exclusively. This is, this is, this is your, your thing. Yep, this is my thing. This is what I want to talk about and <clears throat> who I want to talk to. And, and it's, it's going to be something in there for everyone. You know, and uh, there'll be a lot of lessons learned, a lot of comedy. We're going to have a good time. We're going to learn some shit. We're going to share life experiences, and uh, we're going to fucking help people. So, I love that, man. It's a good mission. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be the Sean Ryan podcast. I think I'm going to call it the Sean Ryan Show. The Sean Ryan Show. I like that, man. Looking forward to that, dude, and wish you the best of luck, and you and Katie and you guys are some of the best people I know. Uh, again, appreciate you being on the podcast. You guys could find uh, Sean on VigilanceElite.com. And, I mean, just Google his name and uh, check out his YouTube channel. Subscribe. I'm looking forward to seeing those shows with the lights and everything else because that's just a niche thing for your YouTube subscribers that nobody else is doing. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Thanks, man. I've I really appreciate you coming up, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. Thanks, brother. Thank you.